So we're, we're in the series, Naked Spirituality, and we're, we've been t- looking at a different word each week that has to do with a different season of the spiritual life based on um, a book by our friend Brian McLaren. This week, we're going to look at two words because next week, we're not going to look at any words. Um, and so we, we have this series scheduled to finish the week before we start Advent. And so today, we're going to double dip. Um, and so we'll be here for double the time. Um, <laughs> that's just how it works. I can't can't cut things out. Um, we've been looking at the seasons of the spiritual life, and we began with the season of sim- simplicity, which is the season of spring. It's when everything is new and exciting, and new life begins to burst through the ground. We've been, we went to the season of complexity, which is summer, where a lot of the simplicity of the, that early season, all the really clear lines, we, we start seeing things fade to gray a bit, and we start asking more questions. And now we're in the season of perplexity, which is the season we're actually in, which is fall. Right, it's when things begin, the, the leaves begin to fall off the trees and all sorts of things. Creation's going through a downswing cycle. And so McLaren puts it like this, that if in simplicity, we reach out to God with like words like hear, thanks, and oh, which is the word for worship he used. In complexity, we reach out to God and struggle um, with words like sorry, help, and please. And then perplexity is that season where everything is just kind of unraveling. If we were to use language that's pretty common today, we would say that perplexity seems to me to be the season of deconstruction. It's the season when the faith that you had that seemed to be working, and I know in this room and online right now, this is, like Josh said a minute ago, the details might be different, but this experience is, for so many of us, um, captures what we've been through. The faith that was working for some reason, it could have been experience, it could have been whatever, the faith that used to work suddenly has stopped working. And, and not only is it not working, but it is crumbling and unraveling. And that whole process of crumbling and unraveling brings a lot with it. Um, it, it, brings, it brings all sorts of fear. It brings anxiety. It, it, it takes doubt and and turns it up to 11 because when you start listening to one question, it starts leading to all sorts of other questions. And there are all sorts of voices during this season outside of us that are telling us that what we're, that, oh, no, no, your doubts and questions, what that means is you just never had enough faith to begin with. Has anybody been hit with that before? And you're like, are you kidding me? I had the WWJD bracelet. I had the t-shirts. My teen study Bible was this thick. Um, I, you're telling me I never believed any of this? I believe this stuff. I was a jerk to people over this stuff. I definitely believe this stuff. And what I learned is that some of the stuff I believe no longer worked for me, and it starts crumbling, and it starts breaking apart. And then you'll have people who come into your life and say, it's okay to go through this season as long as you end on the spe- specific place we tell you you should end. So it's okay to ask your questions as long as you take our answers. It's okay to ask your questions as long as you don't just like leave the faith completely. And it's sort, it would sort of like be saying to a scientist, it, yeah, you can have your hypothesis and tests as long as this is the result. Then what would happen to like, I don't know, basic human advancement if that was the approach we took to science? That as long as you take our prescribed answer to your question, then you can explore all day long. And when we enter the season, it really, we have to, we have to sort of take those, um, you've been bowling and put the bumpers up, you got to take the bumpers off. And when you take the bumpers off, there's a chance you're going to roll a gutter ball. But everything belongs, even the gutter ball. And so we're in this season, words that we've looked at last week, Hunter beautifully led us through when. This week we're going to look at the words no 
and why. The word no is about rejecting something. It's like the first word every kid learns. When we were little humans, one of the very first things we learned was to say no. No, I don't want that mushy green stuff. Um, no, I don't want to go to bed. No. And, and that word no sort of in some ways gets taken away from us some when we're being so ingrained in a spiritual community, a spiritual practice where our no is somehow a threat to the pastor's yes, or our no is somehow a threat to, how many of you have ever been guilted into something in a Christian community? Okay, so some of you, this is your first time ever in a Christian community, because if you grew up in one, you've been guilted into stuff. We're not gonna do that today, but it's a pretty common experience, right? Like, Like if I say no, that somehow, and the no of this season is a little different because this is the no where we begin to say, no, I'm not gonna participate in a toxic system anymore. No, I'm not gonna accept your answers blindly anymore without asking questions about them. No, I'm not going to do whatever it is. That, I'm not gonna go through the system you're trying to put me through because it seems like it's more harmful than helpful. And then the question, why? So no is about rejecting something. Why is more of a question about lament. Why is actually not always being asked, expecting an answer. When you go to the book of Job, and I have this this thing that's come up for me with people in conversations the last week where we've been talking about these parts of the Bible like Job and Ecclesiastes, where, you know, Ecclesiastes is sort of like everything stinks and it's awful and then you die, which is a super sunny message. But we've taken people who have written things on their worst day and we've absolutized them And we've said, this is what God wants you to be like. (laughs) Instead of understanding, no, we are getting the raw human experience of our spiritual ancestors. Some of that is not where we want to live all the time, but we want to bear witness to their witness, right? And the book of Job does that. It's like, why do bad things happen to good people? And what you sort of get in the book of Job is that's really an unanswerable question, Job. God starts talking about mountain goats to Job. Job's like, I'm asking why bad things happen to good people, but the stars, Job, were you there when they were? It's sort of saying, look, this question we're wrestling with doesn't always have an answer. And even if it did, I mean, as a pastor for over 20 years, when I've been with people on their best days and their worst days, when I've sat with people and held their hand and listened to their tears on their very worst days, if they asked the question why and somebody would have been like, well, you ran a stop sign 15 years ago and God doesn't forget. There is no answer to the why question in so many situations that would actually be satisfactory. And when religious people come along and try to put answers to the why question and override people's experience and bypass their grief and lead them to some sort of just be positive, just, you know, just be hopeful and just praise God anyway. When we try to take people through that, we're actually short-circuiting that word I'm trying to say, you know. We're trying to bypass the human experience. And actually, that is part of the experience of how we grow and transform and become certain kinds of people. Are you with me? So there's this sort of thing that can happen in religious settings. But the season of perplexity, the no and the why, it's when all of the certainties and systems that have functioned for so long and made sense of the world, um, it's when they are sort of lying in rubble on the ground all around us. And it can start subtly. It can start by, you know, just little chips coming out of the wall. But then sometimes there there are moments and events that happen that are like a wrecking ball, just knocking everything that you once held and believed down. It can be a dark time. It can be a scary time. It's, It's a deeply anxious time trying to figure out where you're going, hearing the voices of all the people who've warned you about the slippery slope, 
Anybody slippery sloped in here? And then you realize they were totally right, that it was a slippery slope, uh, that, that when you start listening and paying attention to what's going on inside of you, it leads you places. Um, and, and so today I want to kind of try to give us, we're not going to drill down deeply on each of these words. I, I more want to give us a framework for thinking about sort of these seasons of life and how they work. In this framework, I first learned from the work of a guy named Walter Brueggemann, who's a Hebrew Bible scholar. He wrote a book called The Message of the Psalms. And in that book, and we've talked about this before, but I'm sure, I'm sure this is going to be new for some of us. Um, he talks about how that basically if you were to step back and look at the Psalms, there are three kinds of Psalms. Now, if you're a Hebrew Bible instructor in here, I know what you're thinking. There are way more than three kinds of Psalms. And you're right. But in this framework, he's saying there are Psalms written from different spaces, different head spaces, different heart spaces. Uh, he talks about the season of the, the Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of new orientation. And so Psalms of orientation are the Psalms that essentially say this, everything is awesome. Anybody, any Lego movie fans? Um, when that song gets in your head, it doesn't go away. And when your kids watch that in the minivan, on loop, everywhere you go, it's just you're walking around and you're going, everything is awesome. It's just fantastic. That's right, yes. If this doesn't work out, we'll see. We are in Nashville, so I'm in the right spot. Um, but it's, it's sort of an, a, a space of naivete. It's, it's when the world works because the world works. It's, it's when nothing cataclysmic has happened. Nothing has shaken the foundations of your reality. You've not lost anything significant. You've not had a major failure in your life. Like everything just works because everything just works. Good things happen to good people. And by golly, you're good people, right? That's how it works. So if you, I almost said train, say your prayers and eat your vitamins, which I'm pretty sure is what Hulk Hogan used to say in the 1980s. But you do those things. You, you show up at church, you read the Bible, you pray, and everything just, you open your windows and birds fly in in a good way, like your Cinderella, not like you're being attacked, like Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> style. But you, just everything works. You know, everything works. And those are Psalms of orientation. And they're throughout the Bible, where if, you, if you're a good person, you do really good things in your life. God is going to bless you, reward you. God will keep you away from bad things and only give you good things because that's how the world works. But then there are Psalms of disorientation. And Psalms of disorientation are Psalms that were written when all of that sort of plausibility structure, when all that, there's a, a sociologist in the 60s named Peter Berger who talked about the sacred canopy, that lots of us grew up under a sacred canopy where all these expectations and assumptions just existed about who God is, how religion works, how the universe works, our place in it. And it's like in this moment, when you enter into disorientation, it's like somebody has taken that sacred canopy and just ripped it apart. And you're not sure if sacred is a thing anymore. You're, you're not sure about how you fit in the universe. Is God real? Why in the world do we do the stuff we do? It just Everything begins to be questioned. And it, it is a, a time where everything is sort of upside down. One year, um, years ago uh, at our previous church, we were at youth camp, which was a thing we didn't do after, after, very much after this because, not because of this event, just youth camps are, are problematic in the world we grew up in. And um, they had this blob thing, you know what I'm talking about, where it's in the water, the blob, and like somebody gets on a ladder like 3,000 feet in the air and they jump and you're sitting on it and they hit it and it throws you up in the air. <laughs> Well, the guy behind me, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big guy. He was a bigger guy. 
And he, for some reason, had a score to settle. And he jumped as hard as he could, and he landed. And I promise you, I, I hit cruising altitude. Like, I was waving at planes. It was that sort of thing. The problem is, I was so doing this, and I am not a diver. And I've, the only way I do that is if somebody does that to me. And I am spinning, and I am so disoriented. And then I hit the water on the back of my head, and I came up, and I could not, I could not have told you my last name probably in that moment. It was just so disorienting. I remember getting out of the water and going, what just happened to me? I don't think I'm supposed to make those kind of movements in the air. And that's this process. Like if I can describe what began for me as an 11-year-old with some significant loss in my life and then sort of got paused until I was in my early 20s, that process of unraveling and deconstruction, for me, it was that, it was that experience stretched out over years of being upside down and feeling inside out and feeling like I just landed on the back of my head and had no idea how to make sense of, am I coming or going? And what does any of this mean? And at the time I was pastoring too, so I'm trying to get up and say things I can stand behind um, and not say things I don't believe and just trying to, it was all that experience. And I bet whatever your journey has been like and whatever the, the initiating factors were for you, all the details will be different. But I bet that has been some of your experience too. That laying down at night and just wondering, is any of this true? Is any of this real? Does any of this make sense? And in this season, the words no and the words why can be really, really helpful because they help set, no helps set boundaries, right? Does anybody have trouble saying the word no to people? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Somebody's comedic timing is on today. I have trouble saying the word no. Um, we actually, right before the pandemic, um, me and Carla and our oldest were in Washington, D.C. with the One Campaign doing some work, and we were walking across, and there was a guy who was, I'm not actually completely sure what religion he was a part of, but he was dressed as if he were official, and he was selling bracelets, um, and he was wanting a donation. And so I gave him a donation just because he cornered me and I don't say no. And like, I ended up losing 40 bucks on this deal. And we're walking away and Carla's like, why didn't you just tell him no? I was like, I panicked. And he just kept doing this and I kept doing that. I just panicked. No, no though, no is really, really important because for so many of us, we were never taught so many things we were taught in religious education, we were never taught to set a boundary. That actually boundaries, it doesn't mean you're unfaithful. It doesn't mean that you're not spiritual. It means that if you are going to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to take the yourself piece of that really seriously. Really seriously. Because you cannot, truly, according to what the tradition we're a part of, like, if you're gonna love other people, it begins with having a sense of self, which for most of us was demolished. From the moment we could learn, we were told that we were born depraved and rotten and terrible people. But go do good things in the world. and Love your neighbor as yourself when you were taught to loathe yourself. Um, and, and so for so many of us, we were never taught that it's okay to say, no, I need rest, or, or no, that's not good for me. 
or know that that's painful and um, I, I, pain is unavoidable, but I don't have to go sign up for it places. Um, and, and no sort of becomes this, and for so many of us, no is, and I've talked to so many people who have, will have messaged and say, today was my last day at the church I've been a part of for 20 years. Because they keep preaching a message of hate and exclusion and I can no longer go to a place that I couldn't bring my family members or I can't be my authentic self. And I can't go to a place where if I don't you know, line up behind a certain political party platform or if I don't sign on to some sort of theology that I just think is problematic, I can't really, I just can't be me and so I'm gonna leave. And for them, that took mustering the courage to say, no, I'm not gonna remain in this system. No, I'm not going to be a part of something that's toxic and damaging and harmful. Because church should be a safe place to bring your full humanity. And when you find yourself in situations when it's not, no becomes a really powerful word. Sometimes no means I'm not going to be treated that way anymore. Because I've been called to love my neighbor. I have not been called to be the doormat for humanity. And, and you are just as beloved as everybody else around you, and you deserve to be treated like it. Are you with me? Yeah. And so no becomes this really powerful. In, in disorientation, when, when you don't know what is up and what is down, no can become this way of saying, oh, 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 oh. I actually can begin to find a little bit of something to hang on to because I know, I know what I don't think anymore. Now, look, it's really important to, to move beyond just talking about what we no longer believe. It really is. Even if the answer to that is, I don't know, it's important to lean into the I don't know because we can get so lost and bogged down in what we no longer believe that it's sort of like that thing that happens when you, you're just talking about your ex to everybody. Like, I'm totally over them. What are they doing right now? Like, that's sort of how, I went through that with my upbringing big time where it's all I could talk about was what I don't believe anymore. And we hope to move beyond that. But it's important to articulate it. And no is sometimes the process of beginning to say when somebody's like, do you believe? And it's mustering the courage to go, no, I don't believe that because we've been to outer space. And we've learned things since our ancestors talked about it that way. No, I no longer. So no can be a resist. No, no, no. I'm not going to be a part of that. No can be, no, I'm, I'm finally finding my voice and I'm, I don't know what I believe, but I now can say I don't believe that anymore. And that is meaningful and powerful. No matters. And so does why. And when I wrote these words down, I wrote no, all caps, exclamation point. And I wrote why, I wrote why, all caps, question mark. And for me, that's really important because I was raised in a faith that only had periods. Every sentence was factually ended with a period. And there was no room for response. There was no room to feel a thing. There was no room for my anger about the ways I ended up feeling like I'd been deceived a bit. There was no space for the questions. And I actually think exclamation points and question marks belong in conversations of faith. And when we start adding them, it actually can transform the entire experience. And the why question, I think many of us have always wanted to ask, but we're told it wasn't safe. It is actually deeply embedded in the tradition. So if we were to go to a Psalm of disorientation, like Psalm 22, here's how Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a pretty big why question, isn't it? Like, why'd you bail? 
Why are you not around? Why are you so far from saving me from hearing my groans? My God, I cry out during the day, but you won't answer. Even at nighttime, I don't stop. Anybody been there before? Like you're just trying to have some sort of experience in communication. You are the Holy One enthroned. You are Israel's praise. Our ancestors trusted you. They trusted you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. But I'm a worm. I'm less than a human, insulted by one person, despised by another. Everybody who sees me makes fun of me. They shake their heads. He committed himself to the Lord, so let God rescue him. Let God deliver him. But you are the one who pulled me from the womb, placing me safely at my mother's breast. Please don't be far from me because trouble is so near me. They open their mouths at me like a lion ripping and roaring. I am poured out like water. My bones have fallen apart. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You've set me down in the dirt. Dogs surround me. A pack of evil people circle me like a lion. Oh, my poor hands and feet. By the way, do you see why when Mark wanted to tell his story of Jesus, Mark takes the very beginning of this chapter and places it on the lips of Jesus on the cross. I don't know, Mark, I don't think Mark's giving us literal history, but I think what Mark is saying, maybe he was, but I think what he's trying to say is this was the experience of Jesus who in his final moments was betrayed and abandoned and left alone and died in agony. You know, I've had more than one conversation recently where people have asked me, do you think our faith has any room for sort of the existential dread and terror that we all feel all the time, <laughs> right? I was like, yeah, I think it's encapsulated in those words. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine, I'm just trying to think about my own upbringing, going through a difficult time and saying, I think God's abandoned me. And that, that being a safe thing to say. Instead of being told, God doesn't leave us or forsake us, right? That's the great news. Yeah, but when you're on the worst day of your life, maybe you just want to be seen and reminded, yeah, this sucks. And it does seem like you've been abandoned, and that's unfair because you've been super faithful. You've tried so hard, and you've been so good. Sometimes people just want to be seen and not solved. Sometimes, that's hard for me. I'm one of those people, if you have a problem, I'm going to solve it. Did I just quote... Vanilla ice, this is, <laughs> there are things happening here. You just gotta trust the spirit in these situations. Nobody be alarmed. And you think about the end of Jesus' life, when you go through those moments of in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying that, there, that, that this confrontation with the empire would not take his life, right? The, praying so deeply, being so agitated in soul that he sweats drops of blood. And all the while, his buddies are asleep. The people who are supposed to have his back and watch, the people are like, we'll die with you. They are just totally snoozing while he is unraveling, while he is in the middle of disorientation. And then from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? This is like, I've stayed true to the path. I have followed the thing. I have not chosen violence. I have not chosen greed. I have chosen the path of human flourishing, and I'm trying to share it with everybody. And now here I am, my hands and my feet, I'm being publicly, humiliatingly executed because of it. The, the thing that actually gives me a great deal of hope 
in all the things I don't know is that it seems like our spiritual ancestors thought Jesus went through the season of disorientation, that Jesus went through a season himself of doubt and questions that were unanswerable, of no's and why's and when's, that Jesus actually, the, the person who we as Christians are like, that's our person, has walked through that same dark valley. There's something beautifully comforting about that. Here's the thing I want you to know about disorientation. Disorientation, deconstruction, whatever word you want, it's as natural as the leaves changing outside. Right? It's, you haven't done something wrong. It is a natural season. The problem is we've been indoctrinated to believe that leaves changing means that the trees are unfaithful. Would you ever, I mean, if you talk to trees, that's cool. Maybe you're the Lorax. But if you were ever to have a conversation with a tree, would you ever be like, how dare you? How dare you lose your leaves? You just never really had leaves to begin with. It was all an illusion. The tree's like, I'm pretty sure I had leaves. They're there. They're just dead now. It's natural. It's supposed to happen. Perplexity isn't just a season of unraveling and deconstruction, though. It's also a season of transformation. Because when trees are doing that, it's, it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? There's a beauty to it. And I think about this, everywhere I've been driving lately has had the best view. And trees, and I just think about the number of times that people are driving down the road going, God is showing out. Like, that just cracks me up internally when I think about people driving around saying that. Um, but it's just gorgeous, right? It's just beautiful. It's amazing. And, and I had this thought the other day, that tree over there that's so bright red and orange and yellow and gorgeous, that tree is dying. It's dying. We are watching the end of this season, this season's leaf growth. And yet there's something also really beautiful about it because it's part of a natural process. And in order for new growth to happen in the spring, when everything begins anew, you have to get rid of the stuff that's no longer alive. And I think for so many of us, this process, deconstruction, disorientation, is that process of trying to cut away things that no longer serve us well that no longer makes sense of the world or our experience or our understanding of God or our understanding of our neighbors, that we're just, we're not trying to be unfaithful. We're not trying to cause trouble for anybody. We're not trying to, we're just trying to have an honest experience of the human life. And that means paying attention to the things that have to be shed so that new things can grow. I had this experience not too long ago being in the doctor's office and they had this TV that was playing commercials telling us about medical things. It's a technical term, medical things. And one of the things that came on was about asthma. And I thought, I have a touch of that. I should pay attention to this. And I learned the craziest thing that I never thought of before. I always thought the problem with uh, asthma attacks is that you can't breathe in, right? Like that you can't get air. The problem with an asthma attack is that you've taken air in and now you can't let it out. So the thing that, you know, two seconds ago was giving you life is now the thing that's choking you. And my gosh, at some point, the very things that once nurtured and nourished us in the seasons of simplicity and complexity, if we're going to have an honest experience and grow and transform, they have to be left behind because they're choking us. They're starving us. They're keeping us from growing and becoming what we've been invited to be next.
And then there's new orientation because here's the thing, you can't go back. Like you can't go back. Once you've seen, you can't unsee. Once you've tasted, you can't untaste. You can't go back to the naivete of orientation, but you can go to this place of new orientation. New orientation is where everything you've experienced helps influence and form your lens for how you see everything else. And I don't like the word reconstruction because in my mind, whatever you reconstruct, you will now have to tear down again. All right, so there's a problem with that. You're just creating a system of, of constantly having to be. But new orientation means that you are, you, 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 you're hip to what's going on in the world. You know, you've had experience. You, you, you can't pretend like you think everything is all good and rosy all the time, but yet you've gone through the darkness and you're beginning to see the light breaking and you're wondering, could there be something beyond this? And when I think about this, I think about the just profound detail that we're given in the, the stories of Easter, where in a couple of those stories, the risen Jesus has scars. I don't know, if I was writing the story, I think I would have him back better than ever. Right? Not only does he not have scars, he doesn't, like, he's completely healed up and he's completely fine. And that whole crucifixion, uh, that whole crucifixion business is just now in the rearview mirror. But yet when we have Jesus, and that's actually the way his disciples know it's him in these Easter narratives. He shows up and they're like, who are you? And he's like, boom. And they're like, oh, it's you. It's you. They recognize him by the scars. Listen to how Luke puts it. Jesus, Jesus has appeared to a couple disciples and maybe some others, and there's all sorts of confusion. And they're having this conversation about what they've experienced. While they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were terrified and afraid. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you startled? Our doubts are rising in your hearts. Look at my hands and feet. It's really me. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and blood. At this, he showed them his hands and feet. The risen Christ has scars. New orientation doesn't mean that there are no longer scars because if you're going through a disorientation process or you have a deconstruction process, you know that you do not come out of that the same person that you were when you went into it. And that there are some falls and scrapes and cuts and wounds that appear. And sometimes it's not just about our faith. It's about all the relationships that were tied back to our faith that now get a little weird and wonky and awkward. You come out. I don't know that you ever actually leave the, the disorientation process. But if you do, you come out into this new orientation where you're, you're not ashamed of those scars it's not an embarrassing experience, but it's actually helped form you into who you are today. Jesus actually has scars because that's who Jesus is. Those scars now represent something about the reality of who Jesus is. The one who would rather be wounded than wound. There's something powerful. Those scars shape us and they form us. And so right now, some of you are in the process. You're not stepping back one of the things my kids like to do is I have all sorts of little scars places from being too wild as a kid. And they want the story behind that. You're not at that stage yet. You're not like, yeah, I was on my bike and I decided to try to jump a 18 wheeler. Like you're not there yet. Where you are right now is you're in the process of just tending that wound. And that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe sit down beside somebody who's going, this one, whew. Let me tell you about this one. I doubted the Trinity right here. They came <laughs> after me like you would not believe. 
Some of you are like, is it okay to doubt the Trinity? Yeah, it's okay. The risen Christ has scars. New orientation is this invitation not to leave behind disorientation, but to channel it into something that is life-giving and healing, where you know that whatever your doubts and questions are, whatever you don't know, and whatever thing you're thinking that's terrifying right now, you're safe. You're safe. Your no's and your why's, your exclamation points and your question marks are safe. They are safe with God. They are safe in this community. They are safe. You, are, you have not left the path. You are a tree making room for something new and beautiful. It is the process. Trust the process. Trust the process.